Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello everyone, I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction. Today I'm speaking with Gabrielle Mathieu, the author of The Falcon Flies Alone and the host of New Books in Fantasy and Adventure. The second in her Falcon trilogy, The Falcon Strikes, will appear in September 2017. The Falcon series is a fascinating combination of historical fiction and fantasy. Pepper Muller, a brilliant student of chemistry, is shipped back to Switzerland to live with relatives when her father, a Harvard professor, dies unexpectedly in 1957. But Peppa doesn't get along with her conventional aunt and uncle, and soon she takes off on her own. After all, she just has to survive for a few weeks until her 20th birthday brings her an inheritance that will support her in comfort for the rest of her days. But the first job turns out to contain a few surprises, as we can discover right away in Chapter 1. Switzerland, 1957 a precarious situation. I jerked awake, cold and hurting. The floor was so hard. And slanted? All around me, treetops waved in the wind. This was no floor. This was a roof. The roof of a three-story house. Panic hit me, and vertigo flared. I squeezed my eyes shut. My head pounded. Air riffled across my bare skin, raising goosebumps. Bare skin? My eyes popped open and my breath caught. Where were my clothes? I was stark naked. My hands scrambled to cover the essentials. What if someone saw me like this, totally naked? And now sliding toward the ledge. I scrambled frantically for a hold, grabbing the first thing I could, a small chimney. Anchored, for now. I had a more pressing problem than being nude. How would I get down? And now, please join me in welcoming Gabrielle Mathieu. Hi, Gabrielle. I look forward to talking with you today. Thanks for inviting me. We know each other. We publish with the same press. Uh, We both host podcasts for the New Books Network. Uh, We're in email contact several times a week, at least. But I still don't know a great deal about your past. Uh, Your author bio notes that you lived on three continents before the age of eight. Today, you're settled in Switzerland, near the German border. Uh, Tell us a bit about your life journey and how you ended up in Switzerland. Well, I've lived all over the world. My dad worked for the U.S. military, not in a military capacity. And my parents had always wanted me to move to Switzerland, but for a long time our relationship was difficult, and I didn't. And then as uh, I got older and I pretty much exhausted all the hiking possibilities in Texas, I started telling my husband You know, Switzerland is full of endless hiking paths. You can just go for hours and hours. So I was able to find a job over here, and uh, that was one of the reasons I moved, the outdoors. But I like to think that I never do things just for one reason, especially not if it's an important decision like that. So part of the decision was that I lived in Austin, Texas, which is a great progressive city, But it's not really ideal if you're trying to describe a medieval setting or a fantasy setting, unless you were perhaps writing about American Indian spirits. And I just wanted to be steeped in European culture, because a lot of the origin of our fantasy writing is in European-based mythology. And was Switzerland a culture shock from Austin, Texas? Uh, yes, it was. Even though I'm half Swiss, I had to get used to the Swiss way of doing things. Uh, I live in a German-speaking part of Switzerland, which is a little different than the predominantly French or Italian parts. And Swiss-German people are very reserved. They talk around things. They don't necessarily come out and tell you what they want. Uh, they're a little judgmental, even though they're very reliable And they're extremely methodical, and I think that was the hardest part for me is I 
come from an impatient culture where I'm used to multitasking and that's just not something they do, at least not in the small town I live. And when did you start writing fiction? How did you become a novelist? Well, I started writing fiction probably when I was eight or nine. I don't even remember. But I'm sure the trigger of it was being an only child and moving a lot. I remember reading about Madeline Lingle, who wrote A Wrinkle in Time, which, of course, I read as a kid. And she also had somewhat a lonely upbringing. And I think what you do is you escape in your imagination and you start creating all these situations. And I have to say, after a while, my so-called virtual reality, I mean, the stories I was designing in my head that I used to act out each day, they were a little more interesting than my best friend fascination with television. She was watching Gilligan's Island and I Dream of Jeannie and I was creating these fabulous stories in my head. Yes, I think, I mean, long before I actually started writing anything down, I I used to tell myself stories all the time. So uh, The Falcon Flies Alone is the first novel you published, but not the first one you wrote. (laughs) The first one I wrote, I probably started that when I was 14 We were living near Fort Hood, Texas at the time, and as I said, my father wasn't really a military-minded man, even though he worked at the base, so we didn't socialize a lot. I had a lot, a lot of free time, and I wrote my first book in longhand and then spent the next 20 years occasionally revising it, and now that I look back at that novel, which I think I finally completed at age 33 or so. It was basically a distillation of all the fantasy and science fiction that I wrote, I mean, that I read while I was growing up and later on. And uh, there was just too much stuff in it, and it was really slowing down the pace. So uh, that novel wasn't published. I think that's true of most people's first novels. I think most people have a novel that they started and, you know, because learning to write fiction is is not, we're all readers. And so we tend to assume that we're going to be able to tell a a story with craft, but it really is a work learning how to write fiction. And sometimes you can go back to that novel and save it. And sometimes you just have to set it aside and move on. Yeah. It's something you learn by doing. I don't think any amount of, instruction can replace just going through the process of rewriting it yourself and then reading it after you've been away from it for a while. Yeah, I agree with that. Absolutely. Um, I mean, I'm sure it helps to take classes and stuff like that, but I think really you just have to keep doing it over and over until you start to figure out how it works. Mm -hmm. So your epigraph for the uh, novel Falcon Flies Alone is, we all have a beast locked within us. In Peppa's case, it's more than a figure of speech. Um, We'll get to Peppa's beast as we go along. Uh, But what do you have in mind with the first part, that we all have a beast locked within us? Well, I think we're all civilized from the time we're a small child to interact in certain ways and to express anger in a way that's culturally appropriate for the culture that we grow up in. But I am interested in women's rage and how it's expressed or not expressed. Um, I think even with all the advances in feminism, women have still been coached to be agreeable and perhaps to subvert their anger and let it out in a socially acceptable way or hide away their anger and then strike out secretly. And that's unfortunately also why, I guess just to address the political situation in general, sometimes women politicians are reprimanded for the same behavior that might be acceptable in a male. And so I was interested in... uh, the way we have anger and other strong emotions locked away within us and how we cope with those strong feelings, whether we just intellectualize them away or whether we bury them or whether we let them out and in what fashion we let them out when we do. Despite that fascination I have with anger and despite my feelings that people need to be assertive, 
I have to say I'm pretty wimpy in open conflicts, and I admire calmness. So I guess that's something in me, a disparity in me that I'm also exploring in the characters I create. Where does the angry part of me belong, and where does the calm, rational part of me belong, and what situations are appropriate for each part? Oh, that's very interesting because Peppa has a very different response. I mean, she is very strong and uh, assertive. So she's kind of a, a mirror of, of you, in a sense. Perhaps she's a mirror of the repressed part of me, since I do have a day job <laughs> besides writing. And so uh, I have to function and uh, not be offensive. And in Swiss culture, as a woman, that may even take a little more restraint than it would in the States. And how did you become interested in psychedelic plants? Well, if I was still living in the States, I would probably have to take the Fifth Amendment on that. But since I'm not, uh, I can tell you a little bit about it. In my early 20s, I uh, was mostly involved with artists and musicians or just counterculture people. And... One feature of my boyfriend's lives tended to be waiting for the dealer's call. I dated a guy who would be described as a pothead. Now, I liked him, but I got pretty impatient waiting around for those calls. And somehow I felt it was a little bit of a sleazy business, uh, criminal elements or profiting from the drug trade. And I guess out of that grew the idea, like, wouldn't it be nice to just cut out the dealer that you're waiting for the call and you're going to, or not me, but my friend was going to be giving money to that guy and my friend was dependent on that guy. Wouldn't it be nice to just be out in nature and collect something and make it yourself? And then from that idea, I became interested in the way plants are used as medicine in what we think of as primitive cultures, people who live in a jungle in South America or the Indians in Oaxaca, and how in that context, a psychedelic experience became a sacred communion. And I did read quite a bit about those ideas. Uh, I think that's wonderful. I mean, it's really interesting, and it does play out through the books. So let's start with Peppa. Um, she is, as I read in the introduction, in a terrifying place where we first meet her. Um, where is this house with the sloped roof, and how did she end up there? Well, I've actually checked out that little town where she ends up there. It's in a place in Switzerland called the Appenzell, which is just about an hour from where I currently live now. And the Appenzell has a little bit of a reputation in Switzerland because it's a mountainous area where people have been fiercely independent. And they also had their own peculiar folk traditions. Uh, it's a little bit of a mystical place as people who tend to live apart from centers of commerce will uh, evolve in original ways. We could put it that way. So, Peppa's up in this place in the Appenzell because, frankly, she just needs some money until she can get her inheritance. And uh, she's a little bit at a loss for what to do. Uh, she's a great chemist, but it's 1957 in Switzerland, and she's on a run, so she can't really go apply at a lab. And she's finding that she has few life skills. Yeah, fill that in for us. Tell us about her as a person. Um, I gave some sketches about her background, and you just said a little bit more. But her talk, talk about her attitude to life and, and where it comes from, you know, her, her unconventional past and that kind of thing. Well, Peppa's been raised by her father, who is himself eccentric. Uh, he was a pharmacology professor at Harvard before he passed away. And she's been without a a mother since about age, well, since an early age. And the father hasn't been doing a great job of raising her. He doesn't really know how to raise her, so he just imparts his interests to her. He likes chemistry, so he takes her along in the lab. 
he likes talking to other Harvard professors about atheism or about philosophical constructs or about pharmacology. So she sits in on that. And she becomes a very analytical person, but because she has so little influence from other people, she does in some ways become a copy of her father. So, of course, when she's left on her own, uh, that's something people have a lot of trouble dealing with, especially in the 50s. I think I was inspired by the TV series Mad Men, you know, realizing that back in those days, women really did have acceptable interests and then less acceptable interests. So not being interested in makeup or boys and being interested in going to Radcliffe and getting a chemistry degree makes you kind of exceptional in that time and place. And she has these very, I mean, she's been sent off now because she's not yet of age. Um, She's been sent off to Switzerland to live with these very conventional relatives. So they, they don't, they're really on opposite sides of how a woman should behave in many ways, right? This is why she's run away. Exactly. They feel like it's not appropriate for her to study at Radcliffe. Peppa is a little bit of a snob. I didn't want to make her a completely likable character because I wanted to make her a complex, more realistic character. So she's a very just person and she has high ideals. But because her father was a snob, a little bit of a snob about education and about her own intelligence and capacities. She doesn't think of herself as very attractive. And to her, it's very important to go ahead and get that education at Radcliffe. And she's happy to have been accepted there, but her aunt and uncle just don't think that's something that she would need to do. I also see her, I mean, she's very much an intellectual. She's very, um, focused on the life of the mind and her chemist and, and she's a chemist, so she's not even an intellectual in the same sense that a historian or a, a literary person would be. I mean, she's very much a scientist in her approach to life, right? She's kind of a loner and she, she doesn't, um, she relates better to, to chemicals than to people. I have this sense. I'd say that she's an early nerd. Yes. <laughs> That's a good way of putting it. <laughs> I'm sure today she'd be into computers. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh-huh. So Peppa, uh, because she's on the run, she doesn't have much with her. But one thing she has brought with her is her dog, Simone. Um, and Simone becomes an important driver of the story. Um, you also have a dog. Is she the model for Simone? Yes, she is. I've got a pit bull, but I thought introducing a pit bull into a novel would just be a little weird because people have so many preconceptions about pit bulls. Luckily, I didn't know my dog was a pit bull when I decided to adopt her, or I might have been a bit scared. Uh, Our neighbors brought her to us. She'd been abandoned, and she was very hungry and very sad, and she just kind of lay around all day. And I asked my neighbors what kind of a dog she was, and they told me she might be a a pit bull, and I said, no, that's not possible. (laughs) But that's what she is. I just changed it to a shepherd in a novel. That's actually very interesting. You know, Ariadne Apostolou, who also publishes with us, uh, has adopted a rescue dog, and he's a pit bull, and he is the sweetest, most gentle dog that I remember meeting in a long time. He's a little scared sometimes because he's a rescue dog, but he's not at all aggressive. Hmm. Yeah, I didn't know she had one. I'll have to talk to her about that. So, um, so when did you decide that Papa should have a pet? I think it was when I was getting feedback from some of the beta readers that it took a little while to get used to her. And not everyone who looked at the book liked her character. I mean, people might like elements of the book and say, well, I don't know about her, though. And I realized that unless you're writing literary fiction, you really should have a character that has something likable about her or him. And so if you have someone who's detached, who has a violent side, then they have to have a soft spot. They have to have some kind of sidekick, a niece or a pet or something that brings out their protective and compassionate side. Like in the Hunger Games, Katniss is a pretty tough girl. And I also did like in the Hunger Games that 
sometimes she's pretty short with people and we can understand why, but she's not compliant or sweet. But the whole book begins because she's trying to begin uh, protect her sister. And I think that's something we like to see in our heroes and heroines. They might be tough and maybe even calculating, sometimes vicious, but they've got that soft spot, soft spot in their hearts. Yes, that's right. Pets are very humanizing. And actually, in the book I'm writing now, um, I gave my Maria a little sister for that very reason, because she was a very tough, um, you know, short-tempered, uh, kind of uh, mean, almost, character in the in first three books. And I, I started humanizing her in the third one, and I thought, you know, she really needs to have a little adoring sister running around, you know, <laughs> So people can see her not being obnoxious all the time. Yeah, Maria is a tough character to like. Yeah, she is. In fact, I've had people say to me, well, I don't want to read her story. And I'm like, no, you have to. She's going to be okay. (laughs) (laughs) Besides, she's going to suffer. (laughs) You can watch her suffer. She'll get what she deserves, right? Absolutely, yes. So um, so in Chapter 2, the day before, uh, we take a quick jaunt backward. Uh, Some of the material we've already covered um, in talking about how Peppa walked up, uh, wound up naked on the roof. Um, But this is where we meet the Depenas, or Depenas, how do you say it? Depenas. Depenas, Sylvia and George, as well as their house guest, uh, Ludwig Unruh. Unruh, which actually means... This is just a great aside. This actually means uh, unease in German, but it is a last name that is in use in the area of Germany that he comes from. So it was a great find. Oh, yeah. No, that's perfect. Um, I love those sort of little in, – in programming, they call them Easter eggs, right? They're things that oh. are hidden <laughs> that only the cognoscenti know. And so um, I do that a lot with my Russian names as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so the Depenos and – uh, Unro are definitely antagonists in the full sense of the word. Um, I don't know how specific you want to get in describing their goals because they're slowly relieved, uh, revealed over the story. But um, but it turns out that Peppa doesn't um, does not wind up at their house by accident. So tell us who they are and why they were looking for her. Well, I would refer to them as an unholy trio, <laughs> and they each have their own goals. Uh, Sylvia de Pena and Ludwig Unruh are actually the more active participants in ensnaring Peppa. And as we'll find out through the course of the first book, Unruh, who does have an evil side to him, is a man tortured by his past and by misunderstandings that arose in the past. And so he's actually, strange as it may seem, trying to straighten things out, but he's doing so in a way that's very harmful to people around him. And he's the one who really wanted Peppa at that house and took advantage of information he got about her location to devise a scheme to get her up there. Sylvia de Pena, we'll find out more about why she does the things she does in the second book. So um, it's interesting that you met, I mean, Ludwig certainly does have an evil side, right? He does many evil things, but I found him ultimately, uh, I mean, he certainly had some, he's a complex character too. He does have a certain sympathetic um, past because of his past. I mean, he's, he's, he fascinates Peppa as well as um, repelling her. I think uh, the evil demon or person or antagonist is a fantasy trope. I mean, everyone expects to have an evil person and a good person and some kind of fight for a goal. And one thing I started noticing is that I enjoyed fantasy novels or TV shows much more if the villain was a complex person, and actually sometimes the villains are more interesting than the heroes. No one that first came up for me was when I started watching Twin Peaks a long time ago. And in fact, one of the biggest honors for my book was having a reviewer compared to Twin Peaks because I loved that show. And what I liked about it is it was kind of like real life. Evil people 
might be doing evil things, but they have good things about them too. And they have goals. They don't necessarily think that their goals are evil goals. They're trying to accomplish something through the use of some very blunt tools. That's a great way of putting it. Are you watching the new Twin Peaks or has it not gotten to Switzerland yet? Uh, no, it hasn't gotten here yet, but I'm not sure I would like it the same way anymore. Uh, cause I do like fantasy that has, um, uh, some explanation behind it. So at the time, 18 years ago or so when it came out, I don't think I was that intent on finding a thread that would make everything make sense at that time, but. Now I'm more interested in cause and effect. It's, I mean, this is an interesting point, and we should make it at some point during the interview, and now is as good a time as any. Although um, although the Falcon series is described as historical fantasy, and it certainly does have fantasy elements, it is not one of these um, swords and sorcery kind of fantasy novels. I mean, it's very grounded in a particular time and place, and the fantastical elements are associated with the um, experimentation with psychedelic plants, primarily. Well, I think a lot of how we experience reality has to do with things that are in ourselves and viewpoints that occur to us because of certain aspects of our character that situations bring out. And so, in a way, that can be fantasy enough without having to what I see sometimes in fantasy since I'm reading a lot of that as the fantasy host is a tendency to pile one thing on top of another so that things just get bigger and bigger and bigger and I think we've been conditioned to expect that from Hollywood movies that it's never enough well we had the little dwarf but now we have to have something flying and we have to have lots of special effects and then we have to have really big monsters and then we have to have lots of explosions. And in a way, that preconditioning is almost boring for me where my mind will start shutting off. And I find for me that if a story is slightly fantastic, but a lot of it is somewhat real that I can become more deeply involved in a story and experience it more viscerally. Yeah, I actually, I mean, this is something I particularly like about the Falcon novels because, I mean, I've read my share of historical fantasy of the swords and sorcery type, but it's, it always seems to me, frankly, like a kind of cheat, you know, that you can just mm -hmm. bring in a dragon and that solves everything. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas these are really deep, character studies um, of this young woman who goes through one after another very serious event and she's always um, she's always on top of her emotions she's always very present and it's interesting to me particularly because I just saw Wonder Woman last night the new movie mm -hmm. and as um, comic book adventure goes I, I actually really liked it there was a lot about it and it had a lot more I mean, the character development actually made sense, which often in action adventure movies, it doesn't, right? It's just right. not even there. But at the end of it, this young woman who's opposed to war, she's fighting the god of war, she blows up half a Belgium. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> oh, my goodness. Seriously. <laughs> and that part was the least interesting part, because you know at the end she's going to win. And mm -hmm. so there's no tension, really. I mean, it's just a, how many things she's going to blow up before she wins. But the whole first, you know, hour and 15 minutes where she's coming into her own and she's interacting with Chris Pine and all this kind of thing. I mean, that was really fascinating. And I think that's a distinction in fantasy. I mean, there's no reason why you can't write a fantasy novel that has really complex characters. But there is, as you say, a tendency to just sort of pile one thing on top of another. And so I wanted read listeners to understand that this is not that kind of novel. So if that's what you're looking for. You don't want these books. But if if you don't like that kind of fantasy and you want something that is um, uh, really historical fiction with, um, how should I put this, um, with with a, a deep exploration of, of characters and how they interact, then these are definitely books that you should pick up and not be put off by the historical fantasy label. No, thank you. 
So, um, so even in the first chapter, Peppa experiences hallucinations, and here is where the fantasy element comes in. She, uh, she sees herself as a peregrine falcon, and she soon discovers that she's wanted by the police. So how are these two things connected, and why is she wanted by the police? Well, the first chapter is actually a day past the inciting event, so to speak, and that's when several people go to what they think will be a nice little outing at what's called a Bassabeitzli. I do scatter a few Swiss German terms into the novel. A Bassabeitzli is a place in a rural area, a farm, where the people who run the farm also offer some simple drinks and food during the summer season. And the way they used to signal that, and this was before a lot of laws came in, I don't think they have many of those left, but they used to put a broom outside the door and that basically meant like, come on by, we'll feed you, we'll give you something to drink. So Peppa has gone to that event along with a few other people from the village and things just take a very bad turn. And at the end of the evening, there are a few dead bodies and Peppa's fled. So she's the stranger in the village. It doesn't look too good for her, especially once they find out she's an atheist, which back then was a really big thing. And then the second thing against her is she's wearing pants instead of a nice dress or a skirt. That makes her very suspicious to the people of that village, as well as the fact that they have no other explanation as to why this peaceable family would suddenly be lying dead and covered in blood. Uh, yes, it's a very dramatic scene. And so Pepo flees the area, um, and she heads for Basel, uh, where she encounters, thanks to a letter of introduction, um, a man named Christian Engel, who's also known as Tenzin, and he is a major figure in the series. So tell us about him and why he decides to help Peppa. Well, Christian Engel is kind of like nesting dolls, because each time you think you know him, out pops another. For one thing, his name is another little joke for people who speak German, because Engel means angel. So his name's Christian Angel, and she meets him at a mission, and here Peppa is an atheist, so you're thinking these two will not hit it off at all, but actually Tenzin understands what she feels like. Uh, he understands what it's like to be an outsider, because although he has this very German name, he's half Asian. His mother is a Bhutanese nurse, and he's somewhat looking for a path to redemption himself. He's spent the past couple of years doing something dangerous and illegal, I won't say what, and uh, after an incident that was hard on him, he's decided that he needs to help someone in turn. That's the information that he's been given to make up for what he did under pressure. So Peppa comes along at the right time, and he starts trying to help her. So she also has a godfather, Alex Kaufman, and an estranged childhood friend, Emile, and they too agree to help her um, in part with, so that she now has three helpers. Um, tell us a bit about them. Well, Alex Kaufman was actually a bit of the inspiration for the novel. He's based on a famous Swiss scientist, Albert Hoffman, but the Hoffman family didn't feel it was appropriate to have a fictional character named after their father, and I can see their point. So we'll just say he's a character inspired by the work of Albert Hoffman. Albert Hoffman was the scientist who discovered LSD. He wasn't looking for hallucinogen. He was a very respectable professor. He was actually looking for a medicine to help staunch hemorrhaging in women who had just given birth. And working with that compound and changing different chemical things within it, he got some on his fingers and he had the famous bicycle trip when he bicycled back from the lab and everything started looking very different. So he's one inspiration. I wanted him to be Peppa's 
godfather so he could help her a bit on a chemistry because even though she's smart, we want her to be believably smart, not just a complete genius. And then Emil is a very complicated character for me. Uh, like Peppa in some ways, he can be very cold and calculating. Uh, where Tenzin has an open heart, Emil's just a complicated guy. He feels a little sorry for himself. Uh, he comes from a broken home, which was pretty unusual in Switzerland in those days to have divorced parents. And he's always looking for a little bit of an edge. And we'll hear a lot more about him in the third book, where he and Peppa are fairly close for a while. Ah, okay. Well, that's good to know. Something to look forward to. <laughs> so, largely because of Simone um, and with the help of her allies, um, Peppa finds her way to Munich. Uh, so what happens to Simone to take her there? Um, well, Ludwig Unruh uh, has not gotten everything he wants from Peppa after the so-called village massacre, uh, which he himself admits went, things went a little south there. That wasn't what he wanted Maybe that's what Sylvia wanted. We'll find out more about what she wanted later, too. So Unruh wants continued access to Peppa. And in order to do so, he's kidnapped her dog. He's stuck the dog in his car, made sure someone saw him when he was leaving the village, and kind of left like a trail of breadcrumbs for Peppa to find him. And uh, he's not quite sure she'll look him up. But if she's the woman he's hoping for, that is to say a strong and determined woman, she's going to find a way to find him. And what's more, he's going to find a way to get her to Munich. And what's funny is they both think they're manipulating the other person. He likes to think it's his idea that she's coming to Munich to find out more about the experiments he's running. And she likes to think it's her idea. In some ways, they're very similar, too. So once she's there, we go back to the trope of the mad scientist in the basement, although I like to think I present that somewhat originally. And as the book says, the experiment continues. Okay. So um, before we, we move on, because uh, I think we're pretty close to the point where we don't want to, to give too much away, um, tell us a little bit about how Peppa reacts to being in Germany. I mean, with Germany now has a very different connotation for people than it did for Europeans in 1958. So um, tell us a little bit about what it's like for her to, to make that shift from Switzerland to Germany. Well, Peppa hasn't been to Germany since she was actually living in Massachusetts. And her first reaction when she gets off the train, uh, she is wanted by the Swiss police and she's also afraid of the German police and she sees a policeman and he looks like Goering. Now, not everyone may remember World War II that well, but Goering was a feared figure in the Nazi realm. But since Peppa's been more interested in chemistry and science than she has been in politics, she realizes with a shock she doesn't know if Goering's dead or not. Could, could it be Goering? Is he maybe with the police force now? And it just brings up all these fears that I think smaller European countries had about Germany in the 50s, since the war was still a very vivid memory for a lot of them. Uh, yes, and although we won't say how, it's actually a very important part of your plot. I mean, the echoes of the war um, uh, turn out to be a very important part of the larger story. Let's put it that way. Mm -hmm. So... Um, is there anything more you want to say about this first book before we go on to, to talk a little bit about the one that's coming out in September? Well, if I keep talking, I might give away too much of the story. So all I can say to the audience, if it sounds interesting so far, you, you should read it. All right. Yes, that's why I wanted to let you decide. Um, so The Falcon Strikes is the second one. And as I just mentioned, it's coming out in September. And it moves Pepper to Ireland. Um where she runs into a soldier of the Irish Republican Army and gets a crash course in the conflict surrounding Northern Ireland. Uh, but what takes her there in the first place? Unfinished business. The more she's talked with Ludwig Unruh, 
the more she started to have her doubts about Sylvia de Pena. I mean, at first, at first, Unru just presents de Pena as his associate, as someone unimportant. But as uh, Ludwig Unru begins to open up to her, she realizes that Sylvia de Pena is quite a power in her own right. And when she and Ludwig get close, which is a, a strange kind of closeness, but I think you can get close with an enemy, he makes a special request of her. And he asks her to find Sylvia de Pena and finish up what he started. And so that's her task. And she feels like she needs to do it alone. By the end of the first book, Peppa's had been beginning to bloom emotionally, but certain events lead her to close back down and to be afraid of being close to anyone. She's got that Batman syndrome. You know, I'm, I'm kind of a cursed character. I don't want to make anyone else's life miserable. And so the only redemption she can think of for herself is like, well, at least I'm a good hunter. I can go find this woman who's doing bad things and I can maybe stop her. And why did you decide to set the book in Ireland? Well, I do love Ireland. And uh, I had always dreamed of marrying someone Irish. My husband and I have been married a long time. I'm not sure how long it is. (laughs) But I think we met maybe a little bit before I was 40. And at the time, I am embarrassed to say, I did not know there was a Northern Ireland and an Ireland. I just knew there was this place, kind of this magical place called Ireland with green hills and soulful music and lots of folk stories about fairies and banshees. But, of course, the first time I mentioned something to my husband about Ireland and got somehow thought Belfast was in Ireland, he uh, talked to me pretty sternly, and I started getting interested in the politics of it. My husband and I have been in Ireland quite a few times, perhaps four or five, and the more he talked about the politics, the more interested in it I became. And you've mentioned um, that that you have a book three, and the first draft of book three is done, as I understand it. Do you want to tell us anything about that, or shall we just move on? I can mention a little bit about it. I like to have different locales for each of the books. And the third book is set partially in Munich and partially in the Himalayas. And I had put Peppa through so much grief, sometimes as a result of her own decisions, that I wanted to wrap things up. There is a happy ending in the third book. It's not a unrealistic Hollywood-type happy ending where everything's resolved with a bow and the heroine gets everything she wants. But I think she manages to make peace with her issues, and she does get some of the things she wants, although not exactly in the way she would like them. And you actually went to the Himalayas. You were hiking in Nepal, right? I did. Uh, That's how I like to do my research. I think that's an important part of research for me is actually experiencing the places and taking detailed notes. As I said, even though I'm a fantasy writer, I like for things to feel very real. I want the reader to be able to transpose themselves into my story. And to do that, I feel like I have to give authentic details that you can only find if you're at the place. So, of course, I set my stories in places I would like to go visit as well. And uh, it turned out Himalayas was a place I wanted to go visit. And I did go there, and I blogged about it a bit on my author website. And I hiked 11 days straight so I could experience a little bit of the pain that she experiences on her quest in the Himalayas to help a friend. So, uh, so what other kinds of research do you do for these novels? Well, I read a lot of books, especially for the Irish conflict. I have to say I read a lot because just as I would start to think I was understanding it, then I realized that there was some historical aspect that I hadn't quite caught up with. And also it was important to me not to simplify things since my Husband's family, uh, his grandparents were originally for, from Ireland, of course. 
he, although I wouldn't go as far as to say he's ever supported the IRA, but he was perhaps a little more sympathetic to the United Ireland movement. But I wanted to be fair. I wanted to understand what it was like to be a Protestant in Belfast as well. When I was in Ireland and in Northern Ireland, uh, I picked up some books. And what was interesting to me, I'll just do a little aside on this. I guess I had figured that the Catholics in Belfast usually didn't get jobs at the docks the way the Protestants did. So things were a little bit more difficult for them financially, and they weren't able to have representation in Northern Ireland for a while, political representation. But when I picked up this book, and it was in a used bookstore, it was uh, rather old, they had done interviews with people all over Belfast, and I'm sure a lot of them were Protestant because they lived in the Protestant neighborhoods, and life was no picnic for them either. I mean, there were people sleeping in a bathtub because there was no room in the bedroom anymore because there were so many kids, and the women were making starch for the clothes by boiling potatoes. It was just a hard life all around, and it couldn't have done much to dissipate the enmity between the two sides when there's hardly anything to go around. It just intensifies conflict. Uh, yes, that's a good point. Interviews are wonderful. That's one thing I wish that I had for, for my novels, but we don't even have mm -hmm. letters or diaries or anything. <laughs> but, you know, all of those pers personal stories are exactly what you need for a novel. I agree. So what would you like readers to take away from the Falcon series, especially The Falcon Flies Alone, since it's the one that's available now? Well, there are a couple of different things. First of all, I would like to encourage young women who have aptitude in science to have careers in science. Now, I, I like science, and I actually do have uh, a work in a scientific field in my day job, uh, I do medical technology, which means I work with lab equipment to analyze blood and fluids from humans to give medical data. But I wasn't very good at math, so that kind of limited my science options. But for heaven's sakes, if you're a woman and you're good at math and you're good at chemistry, go for it and have a career and don't feel like you need to hide your light under the bushel to be accepted by your peers because you will reach a point where you'll find the right friendship circle that will accept you for being smart and uh, won't be put off by it. So that's one point that I would like for younger women to take. And all over, I think that there's a schism between what people perceive as logical thinking and the information that they pick up intuitively. And that's certainly something that Peppa goes through. It hampers her in coming to the proper decisions because for a while she just can't accept what's happened to her. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't fit into her worldview. But I feel when we're operating off both systems, we actually do better overall. Yes, there are times information will come from unexpected sources, or it won't make sense, but I would encourage people not to discard that right away. You know, one reason they do is I think there's been a whole industry that's grown up around New Age ideals, and it does occasionally prey on people. There's a little bit too much of spirits dropping in and talking to us uh, through mediums or unrealistic expectations. But we should just look at that as an industry and realize that just because some of it is inauthentic doesn't mean that some of our dreams or some of the messages that we get are inauthentic as well. Each person has to decide that for themselves and be open to various sources of information. Thank you for that. So, um, so the Falcon series is basically done. I mean, except for last-minute comments and things like that. Are you working on something else now? Well, speaking of sword and sorcery, yes, I am actually writing a sword and sorcery uh, series right now. Again, a 
girl's 18 years old. I guess I'm just kind of stuck at that age. She's discovering her power. I, I like to think it's a little bit more of a realistic sword and sorcery thing. I do have women's concerns in there as well. You know, the women are worrying about the question of shall I be celibate or if I'm not celibate and I get pregnant, how how am I going to be able to fight on a battlefield? I mean, I think those are realistic concerns that you can't just magic away. And I'm spending quite a bit developing this culture in which it takes place. And the geography is actually based on Central Europe. But the culture, there are two opposing groups. One's the so-called heretic group that uses magic. But uh, they're more considered heretics because there are very small societies built around a different belief system. They give people more opportunities and the opportunities don't have to do with your gender or whether you come from a wealthy house or a poor one. So they're kind of three thinkers in that sense, as well as being magicians. And then the dominant culture is a religion that seems to be uh, female-based because it's a religion that centers around the worship of a very pregnant goddess called Amur. So you think, oh, great, a feminist culture. But the whole catch is you're worshipped as a vessel for life and only as a vessel for life. So if you're a woman, your job is to get married and have kids and then you'll be worshipped. But if you don't happen to fit into that mold, then that culture doesn't really have much of a place for you. And you need to join a heretic cult. That's the takeaway. <laughs> and fight evil. That sounds like a lot of fun. I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> so thank you so much for spending your time with us today. You're welcome. Thanks for inviting me. And thank you for listening to our podcast. Once again, I'm C.P. Leslie. And today I've been speaking with Gabrielle Mathieu about her debut novel, The Falcon Flies Alone. You can find out more about her at www.gabriellemathieu.com. Like us on Facebook, search for NB Historical Fiction, and follow us on Twitter at New Books Histfic. If you do, you'll see each time we post a new interview. You can also find out more about me, my website, and my books at blog.cplesley.com where I upload expanded posts about the interviews and in general discuss history, historical fiction, and the rapidly changing publishing industry. Goodbye until my next conversation about new books in historical fiction.